You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. Our guest today is Jeffrey Hazlett. He's the author of The Mirror Test, Is Your Business Really Breathing? He is going to be a keynote speaker at the PRSA International Conference uh, in D.C., October 16th through 19th, and uh, he will be delivering the keynote on Monday. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. What are you going to talk about? Well, we'll talk about how things are changing in big companies and small companies and what you've got to do to come out of all this recession and really get into one-on-one and having better communication and growing your business because a lot of businesses have been, you know, focused a lot of time and energy on cutting things, and now it's time to grow something. And so the mirror test is all about, you know, looking in the mirror and finding out who's responsible for doing what and what questions you need to ask yourself in order to make sure your business is breathing. What are the biggest mistakes companies make when they look in the mirror? <laughs> well, I think the one of the biggest ones, I mean, I was at Kodak as part of the turnaround of Kodak, and I can remember sitting in a meeting early on and going, Jesus, this, this place is messed up. Somebody ought to do something about it. And then I realized, so I was looking around the room, it was me that was responsible for that. I think a lot of times we're, we're afraid to ask ourselves the hard questions, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I see a lot of mistakes by companies of not asking those tough questions because they're afraid of maybe what the answers are. They don't want to go through the exercise of asking those tough questions. And so that's the biggest one that I see is just a failure to ask them. Give us, if you would, paint a picture for us uh, uh, of your experience at, at Kodak. Um, you know, what, what, what was going on at the company when, when you came in and, and what was your charge? Well, my, my charge was to create tension inside the company, and that was to, to bring everybody from the center of the table to the edge of the table, to lead some of the mood changes, the transformation, you know, to put a new, more digital look on the company in terms of the types of products that we were selling, the way in which we marketed those products, and to, to re-energize the, the voice of Kodak, because it's always been an innovative company. I mean, it's so cold in Rochester, we got nothing better to do but sit inside and invent things. So we, we did a good job of inventing things. We invented the digital camera. We you know, pushed film to its, its, its ultimate and commercial printing and a whole host of others. But, you know, a lot of people believe that the best days of Kodak were behind it and not in front of it. So that was the big thing, getting people, you know, energized about the company and believing that the best days were ahead of us. And so that was a big part of it. When you look back at the company over the last five years, it was doing, say, five years ago, you know, billions of dollars uh, worth of revenue, $15 billion in in consumer film, and today it'll do less than $200 million in consumer film. So you're talking about massive change, and yet it's still an $8, $10 billion company. So we had to replace all that revenue, replace a lot of people, change people, train people, and, and get, you know, get our mantra down in terms of what, what, what it is we do and, and what were we really selling. I mean, I can remember the day when you, know, you went and you bought film, and you took the film, you put it in a camera, then you took the camera to the drugstore, you had it developed, it came back. I mean, that was it. You had 24 chances to take a good picture. 
And, yep. uh, you know, maybe you got one good one. And now, I mean, that world is just gone. Everyone's got well, a camera on their uh, phone. I mean, that, that model, quite frankly, hadn't changed for over 100 and some years. I mean, back when George Eastman started the, the company, it was the same thing. You bought a, a, a wooden camera at the time. They shipped a TSA in Deadwood, South Dakota. You took your 10 pictures, shipped the camera from you know, stagecoach to a train, from train all the way to Rochester. They developed the 10 pictures, reloaded the film, shipped you back your pictures and your wooden camera. And that's what we did, you know, back in the 1880s, 1890s. And so that model really didn't change up into this new digital age. And, and so we had to re-energize the company in terms of, you know, what it is we do. And a lot of people would say, well, we were a film company. Well, no, we're not. You know, they would say, well, geez, you're a, cons you know, a consumer inkjet company because you're doing all this with inkjet printers now. Well, no, they're not. And then they would say, well, we're a commercial printing company because, you know, 40% of all commercially printed items in the world are touched with Kodak technology. Well, no, you're not. So we really were around, you know, emotional technology. Think about it. Kodak has the only product that people would actually run into a burning building to say. And that's at the core of who they are and their brand. So it's about taking that emotion, that emotional technology, and bring it forward as to who we were going to be and the services and products that we sold. I mean, if I was investing money and I had money in Kodak now, I mean, with all due respect, I'd pull it out because I'd be thinking, my God, how do they possibly reinvent themselves? Well, then you'd be making a mistake. Now, I'm not with the company, so I can say whatever I like to anymore, but you're talking about a company that's growing in double digits in almost every single product that it's got. You're talking about 19 products driving 80% of the revenue of those 19 products, every single one of them, number one, number two, or number three in every market they serve. Half of those products didn't exist two years ago, and most of those products are growing in double digits, and some even in triple digits. What are so, the top three? The top, you, top to three me, that's products. that's usually a fairly good investment, not a very bad investment. Top three products. Well, of these products you're mentioning, what are the top three? Well, you got the commercial inkjet products, which are bar no one can touch them in terms of the what's the stream technology that Kodak unveiled a couple of years ago, and so that's making offset class inkjet. Now only commercial printers pretty much know about that. There's the consumer inkjet technology which is just, you know, unbelievable with the, you know, taking on big ink with a, a model that says, you know, longer have to get a, a free printer off the shelf, but the inkjet cartridges are locked up behind the counter. So they charge a fair price for the printer and a fair price for the ink, and that's growing at triple-digit growth. And then, you know, and then still, I mean, the tried-and-true products are still uh, some of its film and the, and the imaging side, but really the hot ones coming on board happen to be the Kodak Gallery, and the sharing products through the consumer digital imaging. So invented a, a new product uh, with a share button on every single camera, facial recognition. You know, Kodak's still number one on cameras in most markets. When I, I, I am not, uh, you know, a knowledgeable expert when it comes to the world of film or printer or any of that, but just as a consumer, just as, you know, Joe Sixpack, when I think of uh, Inkjet, I think of either mm -hmm. HP or Epson. Well, sure, you should. I mean, HP made $9 billion last year in net profit. New profit, just off of inkjet cartridges, you know. You're paying way too much for ink. But now the number one moving up, moving up, uh, Kodak grew that business at over 100% last year compared to that company, which was down by 27%. So you tell me who's doing better. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not the 800-pound gorilla because they are. But the other, the other thing I want to point out, you know, Joe Sixpack here, you're not the target market. You know, could care less. You know, when I was a Kodak as chief marketing officer, whether you knew about the products or not, because I'm not selling to you. 
I'm selling to the CMO of every household. Who's the CMO? The chief memory officer. And by the way, she's 30 to 30 uh, to 48 years of age. She's frugal. Uh, we call her Katie when she's when we're selling to her on the inkjet side, or or Catherine on another product, or Kendra. I mean, we have different uh, profiles on her, but that's 97 percent of most of the consumer products that are purchased by Kodak are purchased by women, not by men. So, you know, with all due respect, I like you, but I'm not selling to you. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about the the chief uh, memory officer in my house. It happens to be my wife. And uh, prior to being a mom, uh, she was a professional photographer, and she worked for a, a big-name uh, 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 photographer who shot covers of magazines and that type of thing. And I told her I was going to speak to you, and she said, ask him, I want to know, is black and white dead? Do I have to put my no, Nikon no. camera it'll away? Still or... it, it, it'll still be there, but the, you know, the issue is how many people are going to buy it for how long? I mean, that's a legitimate question to ask. You know, we when I was at Kodak, we actually um, retired the brand Kodachrome, which was one of the most iconic product brands in the world. You know, remember the old song, Mama, don't take my Kodachrome away. Um, you know, so it was, you know, it had been around for 76 years as a brand. You know, it was just a time to retire because people weren't buying it. Now, some people still think it's one of the best films ever made in the history of the world. Well, it, it is. But it also had 101 different technological advancements above that film, you know, with newer film today. But the key thing is how many people are still buying it? That's a legitimate question. If people don't buy it, they're not going to make it. And so there'll be, will there still be a market for it? Will somebody continue to make it? Sure. It won't be the same price point you had before because as, as scarcity comes, so does the price in terms of it moving up. I mean, that's the, 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 the economic you know, law law and demand uh, will drive those kinds of prices. So will be continue to be made? Yeah, but at, at what price? When we come back, we'll talk to Jeffrey Hazlitt about whether or not the future of motion pictures is digital. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. I uh, was at a barbecue, a family barbecue over the weekend, and my cousin who happens to be a uh, uh, Hollywood cinematographer and shoots big movies, uh, you know, was sitting there, and my brother was sitting there. My brother had his new Canon. He said, hey, I got this new camera. What do you think of it? And he took it out. He was playing with it. And someone asked him the question that he always gets asked, and that question was, well, when do you think they'll stop shooting these major Hollywood pictures on film? And he always says, as he said every, every time I've heard him ask this question, never film is so much better 
such a better image quality than digital image. There's just no touching it. But, you know, from an economic standpoint, I just can't imagine how, you know, it's it would hold on. When you think about what happened in the world of audio, I can remember the day when rich fidelity mattered. And we basically sacrificed that in exchange for random access on iTunes to these low quality MP3s. So I wonder, I mean, do you think we're ultimately going to be forced to relinquish image quality based on sheer economics? Yeah, without, without a question. It's really coming down to delivery. I mean, the quality is one thing. I mean, you'd have to have a camera, digital camera, the size of a football field to capture, you know, the kind of quality that, you know, I'm talking about a lens, just the lens of it, okay, to capture the breadth of what you can see with, with uh, motion picture film. So, uh, but it's really not about that. I mean, it is that, okay, give me that. But it's really about distribution. You today, to get those films out to, say, 100,000 motion picture theater houses, it's by and large still done with film. So until you, it's like changing from, you know, electricity to water or water to electricity to re-pipe all of those motion picture theaters. Once that's done, that will drive it because the economics will be better for, you know, the studios and so forth. And so they'll drive that change, and eventually you will see that because you'll put up with it. You'll put up with it. Um, there'll be, still be those people that want to shoot for films for the film's sake because of the they're an artist. And then there'll be those that want to go to digital because it's good enough, and they're, they're, they're knocking them out. It's like years ago I helped a company create... Uh, for a commercial printer, we called it business color. And someone said, and because the quality wasn't quite up to offset class, but I said it was business color. So let's sell it as business color. And someone said, well, why would you sell it as business color? And I said, because shitty color doesn't work as well, okay? So you can't use that as the term. So I had to come up with a different term called business color. And, and, and the same thing applies here. You're just going to have a different level. And you can tell the difference. Once someone points it out to you, you know the difference by seeing it pretty quickly. I'm going to be, uh, I can see it now, I'm going to be on my deathbed with my grandchildren. They're going to be gathered around, and I'm going to say, When I saw Lawrence of Arabia on 70 millimeter, it was so rich. But they'll never know it. They're never going to see it. They're never going to have a, the opportunity to see that rich image quality. Well, I tell you, they, they should. And, and the key thing that they'll want to think about is what's the archivability of some of these. And the best archivability in the world is happens to be around film as well. I mean, because digital formats, I mean, show me your old beta tapes, right? How about grab those old eight tracks out of there, your old cassettes, and now even, quite frankly, DVDs, um, because we're moving away from these as media. Um, so you, you're going to want something that can last, the, you know, and, and have the best quality, and so film for a lot of motion pictures is going to be where it's at. That's a great point. You know, I actually do have some regular eight film, uh, you know, from the 20s of my family. And I also have some VHS videotape from when I was in high school, which is so degenerated, I can't even watch it. Yeah, I keep thinking about, I've got to go get my kids' births, which I had on a video camera, switched over to at least the digital format, so at least I have another backup, right? Because I took them with old videotape. But the film, I would love that film, but I didn't have that kind of money back then. Todd Van Hoosier uh, from Boston sent me a question for you uh, via Facebook. He says, uh, you know, you talk about uh, winning the war. Where will the next marketing war be fought? Uh, I think there's no doubt in my mind it's in mobile. 
You know, you're talking about a device that's so personal. You know where you, you can leave your house without your wallet, but you'd never leave without your phone. You know where your phone is more than where you know where your kids are. And and so I think the next uh, big plane for most most of us to be able to do marketing is going to be on the mobile and how do we bridge the gap and how do we get the trust of the consumer, the trust of the B2B owner, whoever owns that phone, the owner of the phone, how do we get their trust enough to where they'll let us communicate them with one of the most personal devices that's ever been invented? So, so how do you go after it? Do you think it's about, um, is it about apps? Is our apps the future well, of mobile yeah, communications? Apps will be a part of it. I mean, being on the phone that way, but you want what you want to ultimately do, and I don't think, and I think every business is like this, and we've gotten away from it. Is you want to create a one-to-one relationship with a customer in some way, shape, or form. Apple does that because they think, you know, all the Appleites that, uh, that are followers of Apple believe that every, you know, everything is built exactly for them, you know. And uh, so, therefore, they allow them in and do things and they treat them in that manner and they, they, can, they can command a higher margin, higher price. So, you know, whereas other companies have gone the other route where they have 800 numbers and dial, punch one for this, three for this, five for this, by the time you get to six, you know, people are hanging up. So it's about being more personable, and so I think that's where it's going to get in terms of that trust. Is how do you how do you develop a relationship? You know, and it's going to be a combination of things. It's going to be using social media. It's going to be using, you know, your uh, CRM systems. It's going to be using your, your customer care, and you know, everything. Uh, apps will be one of those where you've got to make a combination of those things to be able to to be genuine in your uh, work with. Um, your work with, uh, you know, that particular um, mobile phone owner or customer in this case. You know, as somebody who's out there, you're on the speaker circuit, you're working with a lot of uh, high-profile organizations on social media strategy. What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions people have about social media engagement or assimilating social media into the communication apparatus of a big company, of a, of a big company two, with a legacy? Two things. Two things. I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just jumped in because I'm so excited about it. One is you can't make money with it, which is a bunch of, it's a crock. Okay, because you can't. Or, you know, with that, you can't measure it. You can't see the return on it, which I think is ridiculous. And I call the new ROIs of what your return, not on investment, but what your return on, it, on ignoring. Um, because the, the, I see a lot of companies. The second is, the second, I think, misconception is that, that you think you have to control it. A lot of people believe that their their brand that's out there, and I, I get this a lot with public relations people and, and corporate communications, quite frankly. They think, well, we own this message. We own our brand out there. You don't own your brand. You never have. And, and, and when the Internet came around, you, you really lost control of it. A brand is nothing but a promise delivered. And so each and every one of those promises, the way in which you deliver, it's a different perception for different people. So what is it you're doing? And, and you never controlled that before. And, and quite frankly, now with all of this other communications channels that are available, you just find that different ways of which people are more in control, you know, of that brand, and and their ways of being able to interact with you. So I think those are the two biggest ones that I see. Now, Business to Business Magazine called you the Marketer of the Year. Um, what wisdom do you have for folks uh, at organizations focused on marketing to other businesses about how to use social media? How is the use of social media for B2B communications different than business-to-consumer communications? Well, I mean, which, which, what we have found, at least I'll, I'll use a Kodak example, 
one of the things that we did at Kodak, um, in fact, 80% of Kodak's business is B2B. Most people aren't aware of that, but that's what the transition's been over the last five years. And um, so we moved more and more into B2B. And, and the way we looked at it was, our philosophy was, how do we help our customers communicate more with their customers? Because the more successful they are at their business, the more successful we are. So we looked at it as providing them tools. So we used it as a way to engage. And I call it the four E's, and I'll talk about that at PRSA. But about, you know, how do you engage? How do you educate? How do you excite? And how do you enthuse or turn them into brand ambassadors? And so you want to go about that same approach. In fact, at Kodak, if you go to Kodak.com and forward slash or go to the social media section, there is a, a manual that we put together for B2B businesses on how to go out and engage and how to, to, to run the four E's of social media. And, um, and I think that's a big thing that you have to do in a B2B side is, is the way in which you, know, you can help your customers do a better job of using the tools. And so that was a big part of what we did at Kodak. Jeffrey Hazlett is author of The Mirror Test, Is Your Business Really Breathing? He is a keynote presenter at the PRSA International Conference in D.C., October 16th through 19th, and he will be keynoting on Monday. Don't miss it. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On The Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On the Record Online and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On the Record Online, this episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.